This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. For the Wild podcast is brought to you in part by support from our partner, the Calliopeia Foundation. Calliopeia honors all life as sacred and works to heal today's issues at their root causes. Calliopeia partners with many projects around a common vision for a future built with love, reverence, and responsibility for our shared home. We are so grateful for Calliopeia's generous support to bring so many inspiring projects to life and for making our show possible every week. Hey for the Wild community, Ayana here. I want to take a moment to thank the city of Bend, Oregon for generously supporting our work. The Deschutes River winds through the town of Bend and is home to rainbow trout, steelhead, chinook, and sockeye salmon, which are being co-restored by the Wasco, Tanino, and Paiute tribes. Historically, dip netting has been prominent along the Deschutes to harvest fish and is a technique still used today. Over millennia, the water draining from the Cascade Range has carved stunning canyons and rock sculptures along the body of this river, renowned for white water rafting. If you visit Bend, we invite you to take the time to visit the water and meditate on the stories it holds. At For the Wild, we're passionate about connecting with water, land, and supporting local economies. We're honored to be collaborating with Bend to spread the word about Pledge for the Wild, a group of mountain towns that support responsible tourism through the preservation of land. Consider supporting and visiting one of my favorite destinations, Bend, Oregon, and help protect the land by giving back at pledgewildbend.com. The thing that I always say about this is that there's nothing new under the sun. And if you're having an experience, you are not the first person in the world to ever have that experience. And chances are someone in your own blood lineage had that experience, even if it's not recorded, even if you can't find them in the genealogy, even if you don't know their name in the story, there is a memory like in your tissues, in your blood, in your DNA, there's a memory of this experience that you can tap for wisdom and support. Welcome to For the Wild Podcast. I'm Ayana Young. Today we are speaking with Dr. Pavani Moray, pronoun P. Pavani is a somatic sex therapist and ancestral lineage healing practitioner in private practice in San Francisco. Pavani works with individuals and couples who wish to resolve the past, inhabit their bodies and their pleasure, and speak their desires. Pavani is also the founder of Wellseum an online sexuality and intimacy school committed to personal and planetary liberation. Pavani hosts a podcast called Bespoken Bones, Ancestors at the Crossroads of Sex, Magic, and Science. The podcast is released every new and full moon and addresses topics of transgenerational trauma, erotic wellness, and ancestral support. As a queer trans witch, 
poverty walks the glitter path of dancing bones, ridiculous delight, and old magic. Hello, Pavani, and welcome to the show. I have been feeling the call to dig deeper into the topics of ancestral healing, embodiment, and pleasure on the podcast. So I'm really excited to share this space with you today. It's such an honor to be here today. Thank you. So just to jump right in, I'd love for you to ground this conversation today by telling us a bit more about your work. How are you weaving together the threads of ancestral connection, embodied wellness, and erotic freedom through your practice and your podcast? I think that it's important to understand that sex is how we all got here, right? It's it's through the sex of our ancestors, through thousands and thousands and thousands of of folks having sex and fucking and making love and being consensual and non-consensual and all that stuff. Like that's how we got here. And, and so when I think about erotic wellness, uh, an essential piece of that is tending to just that acknowledgement of the eros of our ancestors. And, you know, I think there's such a, a taboo about talking about sex in families, but there's something really beautiful when we think about like, oh, the the unique expression of each human, right? The unique combination of DNA that combines to create you and you and you comes from this long line of people practicing Eros. And that Eros is this current of creation that runs through all life, right? It's it's the thing that connects us to every other living thing on this planet is Eros. And and so as I hold that in in the work that I do, it's the really the coming back to the sense of what is it to inhabit our best erotic selves, our most alive selves, the li- the the selves that are the most deeply connected, the intuitive knowing, the attunement with other humans, with other than humans, with the earth. The erotic is really the place of our, its core. It's such a core place. And so to, to move towards the erotic, right? And especially in a culture that where it's so sexualized and pathologized and commercialized and um, we're taught so many messages about it and to come back to it as, oh, this is an original state of wellness, right? Of of free-flowing Eros. When Eros is allowed to move through us, it's a it's an original state of of wellness and of being that we all have the possibility to tap back into. That was beautiful. Yeah, it's really interesting and curious to see all the shame that's been built around our bodies and eros and sex when it really is extremely natural. It's how we got here. And it's something that doesn't have to be capitalistic in nature. And so I'm really glad that you're speaking about this topic in this way that's really open and inviting. And yeah, like I was saying earlier, the topic of embodiment is really alive for me right now particularly in how we're showing up for ourselves and our relationships in this time. On an episode of Bespoken Bones, you shared, quote, being embodied gives us more access to all of who we are. 
when we are not living fully to the full edges of our skin, when we don't have access to all the sensation that's present, we're actually missing out on a huge piece of human being and the human experience, end quote. So first I want to ask, what holds us back from being present in our bodies? And second, what shifts when we are inhabiting our bodies in a way that is whole, visceral, and pleasurable? I want to be careful in answering this because I, I also feel like there's a, um, a tyranny of embodiment that it's the, you know, that it's like every yoga teacher is like, you must be in your body. And um, <laughs> so I really want us to mm. not pathologize not being in our bodies because like you're asking what, what holds us back and, and it's that we don't feel safe, right? It doesn't feel safe to be in our skin. It feels safer to put our attention outside of our somatic experience outside of our emotional experience because the the sensations and the emotions are so overwhelming or they're so painful so unpleasant so unbearable that the smartest the most wise thing for our bodies is to learn this skill of taking the attention outside of the experience outside of the embodied experience right and so and there's that's a beautiful beautiful survival strategy it's it's one of those those ones that works until it doesn't and it has costs and it has benefits just like you know all of our strategies and so it's really about readiness right of when is someone ready to make the perilous journey back to the flesh back to feeling back to sensation back to intuition because when you're in your body in that way, it becomes really impossible to live out of your integrity, right? You have to be in alignment with your true knowing. And the, um, the true knowing that comes from you being a creature in the world, like in the natural world, yeah? And so, so many of us, like in order to survive and capitalism are placing our attention elsewhere, right? We're placing it in, and sometimes those are in really good places that we're placing it. And then sometimes it's just, it's more distraction. But so the, I would say that the, the call back to the body of like, when you feel ready, when you feel like you're ready to experience all of that sensation and emotion and, and build your capacity to be with, right? To be with what is, it is revolutionary work and it's in no way supported by our culture. So I think of it like, oh yeah, this is my activism. Like I am going to be in a non-normative body and I'm going to be feeling it and I'm going to build capacity to feel it all because really I want that and I get to have that. And, and, but that's also like, you know, that's years of, of healing work. Right. And so how do you build embodied safety? How do you start to create a sense of safety inside your own experience? Like, how do you know that your resilience is, is going to win? How do you know that it outmatches, you know, your fragility or the places that you feel small? And so like that capacity building is an intentional choice and it's an intentional practice that you do over and over and over and over again of bringing the attention back to the body um, for the sake of feeling. And it means that you have to, when I think about it in terms of like race for folks who are, are white, 
like how do we build capacity to be with the truth of the pain and the harm and the suffering that folks of color endure under white supremacy? And how do we build capacity in our bodies to, to be with it and not turn away from it and not crumple under the shame of it, of, you know, kind of what our ancestors have done. And, and, and that is deep spiritual work to, to build that capacity. It feels so important to name the origins of our greater cultural disconnection and dishonoring of the human body and the earth as body. This idea of mind over matter and severance with the body is central to projects of colonialism and white supremacy and remains deeply rooted in dominant Western culture. So I'm wondering, how is this fracturing felt on an embodied level and carried through the generations? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's not felt. Mm. <laughs> like, that's the problem. If, if like th That's the problem of using disembodiment as the continual strategy is it's the absence of feeling, right? It's the, um, like, when you can other someone else's suffering, right? Because you can't, you can't bear to be with it. You can't bear to feel it. And, um, and it just perpetuates like generationally, I think, you know, if children aren't, aren't experiencing parents who are, who have the skills to, to be empathic, empathetic, to feel as well as to, to not take it on, to not bear witness, right. To not collapse under it. Um, if they're not getting that modeling, then it just increases of like, oh yeah, this is, this is the good way to be with this disconnect, right? Of just like, just don't notice it, pretend it's not there, pretend it's not happening, right? But I think we're at kind of at a, at a, a point where it's like, it's harder, it's harder and harder for more people to just like pretend that it's not there. More people are like, oh wait, actually, and we feel it through belonging, right? We've earned this belonging. We feel it through like, oh, actually I don't, I don't feel connected. I don't feel like I have community. I feel alone. I feel alienated. And so it shows up like that. Yeah. As you've touched on, being alive in our bodies also means being present with the pain and grief that we not only carry in our psyche, but also within our flesh and bones. When we talk about healing, I think there is an impulse to reject our or bind our trauma in in that process, disavow our bodies as vessels of great wisdom and information. And as a healing practitioner, how do you approach trauma in your practice and help people feel at home in the complexity of their bodies? Yeah. I mean, I, I think about trauma a lot as an altered state of consciousness. Like most people just really want to avoid being triggered, right? They don't want to feel their trauma. They don't want to feel their their freeze or their shutdown or their fright, their fight or their whatever. They don't want to feel that stuff. And so, but it if you think about it as that the the trauma is an opportunity, right? That it's like an invitation into getting really good at walking in an altered state in your body, right? Because like trauma can be super psychedelic, you know, the, uh, like the walls start bending and time gets all weird and the floor drops. So, you know, like all that stuff that happens on a somatic level, the, all the trauma responses that can happen when we're really triggered. It's like, oh, like, what's it like to, to be someone who is good at navigating those altered states of reality for the sake of, really being able to access the the gifts of the trauma. And this is kind of a hard sell, right? Because like 
you're like, what are the gifts of the trauma? And and it's, I would say it's, it's an advanced project. It's not like kind of like trauma 101, right? But like, I am somebody who has a lot of sexual trauma and um, being able to be with my own body when that's happening and, and allow, like when it's really intense, it's, there's no way you can hold that much energy in your own body. And so you have to let life hold it, right? You have, it's like, you have to let the ocean hold it. You have to let the earth hold it with you, right? Because it's the intensity, the normity of the intensity of the sensation is just, you know. And so if you, if you can do that and you get good at it, then there, the things that we gain out of trauma, like exquisite sensitivity, for example, the flip side of it is hypervigilance, right? And, but like that sensitivity is such a boon to like, if we can learn to be skillful with it, right? And not just be fragile with it. If we can learn to like, oh, how do I use my sensitivity that I've gained through trauma to like deeply feel into what is this land calling right now? What is life asking of me right now? What is this river asking? What does this mountain need? What does this project call forth? You know, it's like we can start to to fine tune those sensitivities that we're, we've gained from trauma. And so I feel like there's like this tremendous value in in getting fluent with it and not just shying away from it. But it takes it takes a lot of dedicated effort. It takes a commitment to doing it. And it also takes community support of like having good people around you or good animals around you who are like going to help you navigate those territories. Cause it's like a magical reality, right? Of like, okay, how do I, how do I move through this? It's fucking good. 
keeps the score, Bessel von der Kloek shares, quote, traumatized people chronically feel unsafe inside their bodies. The past is alive in the form of gnawing interior discomfort. Their bodies are constantly bombarded by visceral warning signs, and in an attempt to control these processes, they often become expert at ignoring their gut feelings and a numbing awareness of what is played out inside. They learn to hide from their selves, end quote. And I just wanted to read that and as a response to some of the things that you've mentioned. Mm-hmm. And I think part of what you're speaking to is our cultural inclination towards shame, denial, and dismissal, perhaps. And although trauma yeah. is encoded in the self, I wonder about the necessity of healing relationally. One of our greatest powers being to witness one another in our incompleteness and hold a container of safety for our unsettling. So I'm wondering, how does intentional, well-boundaried reciprocity and care for others figure into your paradigm of healing? Uh, I feel so soft in my heart hearing that question. Mm. Yeah, something that I notice, especially in queer culture, and I'm not the first to notice as other people talk about it, is just the, the lateral violence we do to each other because of our trauma you know, and, and also like the weird trauma bonding that we do, right? We, we say, oh, trauma bonding that if I'm sharing my trauma with you, like that's uh, intimacy. Like, and I'm like, no, that's not intimacy. That's intensity. And those things are different. Right. And knowing your capacity, honoring your capacity, like to be able to play, dance, move in these realms of trauma, like you have to be aware of what your capacity is and you have to be willing to acknowledge that you have a capacity, right? Like you don't have to be capacityless. I don't even know if that's a word. You don't have to be able to be with everything. You can only do that work insofar as you can be with what's presenting. So for example, I work with deeply traumatized folks around sexual trauma all the time right? And my capacity to be with that has built over the years that I've been doing the work. Initially, when I started, you know, it was devastating to be with it and really hard, especially like my own stuff would come up and I would get triggered in session, you know, and so how to to navigate that and how to do it in a way that you're not uh, minimizing the impact of the stories that you're hearing, right? How to like, how to deeply acknowledge it and hold it And like, sometimes you have a limit, right? Or sometimes you need support. And so I think that's the first thing is, is really being aware of, of your capacity and being willing to be honest about that. And sometimes we don't know that we've hit our capacity until we do like, oh shit, there was my boundary. Great. Okay. Lesson learned. I think the piece about reciprocity, you know, um, I'm in long-term partnership and my partner also has sexual trauma it's been so comforting, right? To be in relationship with somebody who like gets it on a body level, right? You know, that stuff happens during sex and one of us will get triggered. And that's just part of it. Like that's just part of being a trauma survivor. And 
and so that deep comfort of knowing like, oh, you, you have gone through things too that are, are challenging for you. I don't have to justify my experience. And I, so I feel like that's a real a place that we can offer that witness and acknowledgement to each other in community is, is really by like allowing each other to be just how we are and not, not having to fix each other, not having to, yeah, I think it also helps with the white supremacy piece, right? Of like, we don't have to be perfect to be in relationship it's going to be messy. Are we committed to repair, right? Are we committed to repair with each other when it gets messy? Yeah, so knowing your capacity and being honest about it, being able to share with other people without without fixing. The last piece is really about, do you really want to, to change the, experience of what's happening in your body like what percentage of you is willing and what percentage of you is resistant like because trauma is sticky and it can be kind of like compulsive or addictive and so we can be like working on our our trauma and therapy and then we can be like acting out our trauma in our communities right and so just I think that being in that question with oneself about where am I on that spectrum right not not am I willing to work through my trauma so that I can be a good community member, but like how responsible am I? Because I don't think that trauma excuses you, right? Like it, this is the sucky part that just because somebody has, has trauma, it's like the person who has it is left holding the bag with it. And it's so super unfair. Yeah. It just sucks. It, it's not fair that like this person who is, who has been victimized by this thing that now has to like figure out how to heal it and how to like be in community and how to not project it on other people. But, but that's the deal, right? Like, let's just be honest about it. If we want to have healthy communities, if we want to have healthy reciprocal relationships, we have to start taking responsibility for our, our wounding and our capacity to do harm because of that wounding. Intimacy is built with time. And in its trust, it's you've heard what Adrienne Marie Brown has said about it, right? Of like moving at the speed of trust, and and that's intimacy, long-term relationship, uh, rupture and repair, rupture and repair, rupture and repair, and being committed to one another. And um, intensity is just that. It's just like it makes you feel really alive, like the way adrenaline makes you feel really alive. But it's not um, it's not a nervous system state that is sustainable. Right. And we want to, I mean, just tend to our collective nervous system of like, oh, how, what is it to like start to settle? What's it to start to root again in groundedness and goodness? That is so helpful to hear about trauma bonding, which is a term I'd never heard before and intimacy versus intensity. And I know because of this loneliness that so many of us feel, we desperately want to have that connection of intimacy, but really realizing and remembering trust takes time and we need to build our capacity to hold ourselves as we build trust. And it's such an amazing lesson. And thank you for speaking to that. And there's this question that's been coming up for me a lot recently in relation to movement spaces and how we approach building collective power. And I think so many of us have focused our energies on the deep, urgent issues that connect us without nurturing each other and our relationships. 
And to me, this means caring about people's shadow sides, their complexities, and showing up for their unraveling and undoing. And I'm really sitting in this question of how creating relational space is part of the way we will be strong earth defenders. I feel like there's so many people who are really connected on the deep issues, but they're not connected in depth to each other. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of us have strained relationships with family of origin. A lot of us, especially white folks, have deep shame around acts that their ancestors might have perpetrated. And so the idea of connecting ancestrally, it's like, well, those people were fucked up. Why would I want to why would I want to connect with those people? Because I don't, I don't approve, you know, I, it's not what I would have done. And, and so we're cut off from a possible resource of blessing and support. And, you know, how I hold it is that the, the dead are not all equally well, just because someone dies doesn't give them any special status, right? They're just no longer in a human form. And, when we think about connecting with the unseen worlds, the energies, at least that I want to be connecting with, just like I want to have like friends and community that I trust their capacity to self-reflect. I trust their capacity to choose love. The energies in the unseen world, I want to make sure that that is also happening, that I'm not, you know, just because something is unseen doesn't mean it's like super spiritual. It just means it's unseen. And how do we start to vet? How do we start to have discernment practices around what and who we connect with? And so the idea of ancestral healing is really that the dead can change, right? And that possibly they want to change and they want to be in a more well or elevated state. And I've definitely in my own ancestry had this experience of relating with dead people in my lineage who were deeply committed to writing, to repairing, right? So this kind of goes back to our our conversation about um, relationality and repair of like, that they want that. I'm I'm guessing, I don't know, I'm not dead, um, but I'm imagining that you have a different perspective once you're dead and that things that maybe you were practicing or committed to while you were in body, just are, you have different priorities and you can see things in a different way and you might really want a chance to make things right. So that can happen, right? We can do this work through ritual. There's lots of different ancestral healing technologies. You know, some of them, you're doing the work yourself. Some of them, somebody else is doing that work for you. You know, I don't have I'm not judgmental about kind of like how it happens, but I think the the idea of like establishing relationship with ancestors is important, A, and making sure that they are in a good way. Just like we say prayers for our descendants, we say prayers for those who come after us. Like we also say those prayers back in time of like, oh, I want you to be well because I want to be able to lean back and trust that you're in a good way and that you've got me and that this line is thriving, right? That this line that I'm the living face of right now, I'm the right now, that the ones before me and the ones after me, there's just, there's goodness and that there's love that's flowing. And so, yeah, how do you do that? And so that the, you know, there's the technologies that exist to do that. A lot of them are indigenous technologies. And does that answer the question? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did I miss any parts? No, no. And it's, yeah, it's a deep question and it's, it's really, 
Yeah, I feel like we need to be expansive to be able to take it all in and feel it in our bodies when you're speaking about this because it's not something that feels linear or like there's some reductionist model of how to do it. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I really feel mm-hmm. you. And I'd really love to also hear more about your practice of uh, transcestral healing and experience in supporting LGBTQ clients in ancestral lineage exploration and repair. And I'm wondering how how does this process conjure different paradigms of gender and sexuality beyond the Western binary that may be connective or healing for queer and trans folks? Right. Yeah. The thing that I always say about this is that there's nothing new under the sun. And if you're having an experience, you are not the first person in the world to ever have that experience. And chances are someone in your own blood lineage had that experience, even if it's not recorded, even if you can't find them in the genealogy, even if you don't know their name in the story, there's a memory like in your tissues, in your blood, in your DNA, there's a memory of this experience that you can tap for wisdom and support. Right. And because folks with other identities, like queer folks and trans folks, you know, so often feel disconnected from their families of origin, it's like, well, what if we went back in time? Like, what if you could build a time machine and go back and like be with this really, really beloved elder who like totally gets you and it's like, oh, child, yeah, of course, you're having this experience. It's There's no words for it. Like They want you to be in this side of the fence or on this side of the fence, but you don't, you're not. And your love is beautiful. And the way you are is beautiful. Like, what if we could do that? Right. And so we can, I, I believe we can. And I think it's deeply nourishing and healing to, to lean in there and rewrite the orphan narratives, right? Of like, oh yeah, I deeply belong in my queer lineage, you know, and they can really get my struggles and they can, and maybe they use different language and maybe they had different words for it. or Maybe they didn't even have words for it, but they get it. And I'm not alone. And I didn't come from nowhere. Like this experience that I'm having that is challenging, painful, struggle, beautiful, like that it's a blessing from my lineage. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and so like when I think about like transestors, I'm I'm thinking about both the ones in our blood, those people who had varied gender experiences, as well as the mighty trans dead, the the dead like Sylvia Rivera, Marsha P. Johnson, Lou Sullivan, the ones who worked in their lives really intensely for liberation and who have provided these like role models and paths that we can follow and lineages that we can build on. And so it's like both, it's both the blood and the ancestors of, of heart uh, is what I'm talking about when I'm talking about transestors. And yeah, I think that this, that, that recognition that these things are actually blessings and that, you know, we are in a time of deep ecological crisis And here, nature is responding by providing all these trans folks. And like, what are trans folks good at? Trans folks are good at shape-shifting. Trans folks are good at holding complexity. Trans folks are good at walking the edges. Like, these are like built-in skill sets that you just like, when you get your trans card, they just like hand these out, right? They're like, okay, get your gift bag here with all these skills, right? And they're needed skills. They're like really important skills for this time. But because transphobia is so prevalent, 
like that, that gets internalized and people aren't like, Oh, look at this bag of superpowers. I just got, you know, it's, they're not really aware of it. They're, they don't know the power. I mean, I, I think we know, we feel it, but um, it's so pathologized and it's so hated. So my sense of it is, is it's just like a, it's an ecological corrective for humanity. And that over the course of evolution, over the course of time, when we look back, this moment will be a great pivot, will be a great turning, like Joanna Macy says, of, and, and trans folks are, play a huge role in that.
I'm really thinking into this ancestral healing and especially for white settlers who carry both privilege of oppression and privilege in our bloodlines. I'll speak about myself within that. And I was really moved by your conversation on Bespoken Bones with Tata Hazumi, in which they raised the point that many white people turn towards practices like yoga that resource their healing power from POC spiritual traditions. So I'm really sitting with this big question of how do we ensure that white folks are not replicating the same colonial patterns of extraction within our quest for self-care and wellness, and maybe even adding on to white folks, but also white cis-gendered folks as well. In particular about ancestral healing or just in general? Well, yeah, I would say in ancestral healing, like there's this question of whether it's white settlers or kind of this dominant mentality. Like what I find is it seems like probably everybody needs healing on on multiple levels, but how we go about that healing and not bring in that dominant narrative that takes and consumes something from outside of us to make it our own in order for us to heal. And so I definitely see it with white settlers taking POC and indigenous ways of healing and trying to, you know, consciously or unconsciously make it their own without proper acknowledgments. But I'd also imagine that that's probably happening in queer spaces as well, taking from the work of queer and trans folks and coming in and reaching for something that feels genuine, feels like it's a healing modality and not really giving proper acknowledgement, but also taking the healing and just perpetuating the type of oppressions that are. So I know that seems like a really maybe too spread out of a question, but yeah, I just want to speak to that because when we're talking about ancestral healing and and healing of these wounds, I want to make sure that we're all being aware of how to do it in a good way and not stripping people who are already oppressed of their connections and modalities. Yeah, that's great. I appreciate it. You know, what comes to mind is, so I went on an ancestral pilgrimage in 2016 and to Scotland where my people are from. And um, I did a lot of research ahead of time, you know, the places that I wanted to go. I had conversations like with people who had been on pilgrimages, you know, just did a lot of probably six or eight months of prep. And um, in a conversation that I had with one person, what they told me was, you know, hey, like all of the things all the things that you want to know about your people, all the things that you want to know about the traditions and the the rituals and the prayers and the songs and the spiritual practices, like they actually encoded it all in the land. It's actually all there because of when the Christians came, the Druids were like, they saw what was happening. They saw the erasure that was happening of traditional culture there. And so they used magical practices and spiritual technologies to encode it into the land, into the place names, into the um, the standing stones and the stone circles. And so if you go there, you can figure out how to unlock some of that and whatever. I was like, oh my God, that's the hippiest thing I've ever heard. You know, like, okay. Um, but it actually was my experience and of of going and like, Again, this is it comes from the embodiment though, right? From the the willingness to attune, was able to go and to listen 
with my body. And like, I could feel when I was making a misstep or I could feel when I was doing something incorrectly. And so like, it just was like, kind of like a exploration of like, okay, how, like, for example, how do you approach a sacred site? Right. What's the right way? Oh, it's not the same for every sacred site. It's different for each one. Each one has its own specific keys. And so you have to figure those out. How do you figure those out? Well, you have to get quiet and you have to listen. And when you think you know, like, oh, I should, I should sing this song to this beautiful stone and see if that works, you know, and then just like track, like, did that work? Am I allowed to come in yet? Like, you know, what's the way of your people, Pavani? And so, and really having, but like that, that entrainment and that attunement is available. We just have to listen to it. Right. And so um, it's not speaking directly to your question, but I, you know, we don't need to, we don't need to use other people's technologies if they're not freely given like some people freely give their technologies and and that's a beautiful thing to receive but if it's not freely given then we don't need to do that um, because white folks have their own beautiful technologies that you know and not everybody can take a bunch of time off work and go on a pilgrimage and you know I think that that was that made it exquisitely accessible to do it like that for me because I've been able to do it here too of just like listening and waiting and, and that patient waiting and, and being willing to be with the not knowing of like, what's the right way to make an offering to this tree? Okay. Well, I don't know. I'm not just going to like do it. I'm going to like wait until I think I know, and then I'm going to do it. I'm going to check in with my body. I'm going to kind of like listen to the tree. You're like, Oh, that, that went well. That's the way to make the offering to that tree today. Great. You know, but it's that, it's that willing to be with the not knowing to not have to know, which I think is, part of white fragility is this having to know peace. Yeah. Well, I think you answered that really wonderfully because I agree how to not bring settler mentality into healing spaces or, or ancestral healing is I think, yeah, being able to sit with the unknown, being able to sit with this discomfort and humbling ourselves to take the time whether or not we go on a pilgrimage or not, it could be our backyards. It could be the street that we walk on every day. I mean, I think that the land everywhere has this magic and this knowing, whether it's concreted or not. But that type of patience and humility, I think really is the, not maybe not the key, but definitely on the key chain of how we, of how we begin that healing. The music you heard today was from Itasca. Their record Spring came out on November 1st, and they're a big supporter of the podcast. So please support them by going to wherever you get your music and download. I would like to take this moment and thank our team, Aidan McRae, Andrew Storrs, Carter Lou McElroy, Erica Ekram, Aaron Wise, Francesca Glassbell, Hannah Wilton, Melanie Younger, and Suzanne Dollywall. Tune in next week for part two of my interview with Dr. Pavni Murray.